0: what would it be?
1: Can you take a pause and you can you walk back a situation You say, Hey, what could have gotten this person to this point to this belief system that maybe I might understand. And again, I just still don't have to agree with it, but I can at least understand and empathize.
0: Have you ever wondered what Navy SEALs really do? Not the stuff we see in Hollywood blockbuster movies, but what makes them tick, and how do you ever return to normal life after living on the edge for so many years? Well, we are about to find out, as my guest today is Rich Deviney, who is now a best-selling author, leadership and human performance expert, and a retired Navy SEAL commander. In a career spanning more than 20 years, he completed more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan. He served on multiple SEAL teams and in several leadership positions, including as a commanding officer for a SEAL squadron. As the officer in charge of training for specialised command, Rich was intimately involved in an extremely specialised SEAL selection process, which pared down a group of exceptional candidates to a small team of the most elite optimal performance. What a fascinating job. After retiring from the Navy in 2017, Rich worked as a speaker and facilitator before releasing his book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. This has led to a business called The Attributes, where he brings all his knowledge together as they help companies build the highest performing teams possible. I have so many questions for this fascinating human. Let's dive in. Rich, it is fabulous to have you on the show. Welcome to Australia Through the Podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be in Australia Through the Podcast. Sort of.
0: (laughs) Well, you've just been telling me you're coming, so that's very exciting for the first time next year, which will be amazing. So hopefully we get to welcome you with beautiful weather.
1: Well, even so, it'll be nice to be there. I've never been to that, that part, so it'll be great.
0: Yeah, no, it'll be great to have you. So, Rich, let's kick in to this wonderful topic. I know it's going to be, if there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, what would it be?
1: Yes, I think we could talk about not talking, <laughs> and in and, and a word, talk about listening more. I have found that if I if I just shut up and listen, especially empathetically, in other words, I don't listen in the sense that that most of us listen when we're when we're when we're listening to someone, we're actually thinking one of two things: either what I'm going to say next, or how what this person's saying relates to my life. It's not for a malicious reason; it's just because we want to we want to say something. We're, we're not comfortable with silence, and so every conversation seems to need a cadence. You know, they say something, we say something, they say something, we say something. And I think if you train yourself to to think of the thoughts in your head like a whiteboard, and as the thoughts kind of get in your head, just wipe it away. And you just completely and empathetically listen to another human being. You'll learn a lot and you garner respect and garner a feeling of caring and compassion from other human beings. And I think if there's anything that we could use in the world today, it's more of that.
0: Love the topic. And I think your point there around that listening, you know, with more intent is really, you know, one that I kind of love to drill into a little bit more. I mean, if you talk about your background, you know, you're a Navy SEAL. Being controlled, and I guess, you know, in those kind of elements of being told what to do. And I imagine you probably weren't allowed to talk too much, you know, in your day job. So is this something that you felt all the time, or is this sort of a phenomenon, I guess, that you're finding now more and more in the days of social media and? What's your sort of experience in that regard?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's a little bit of both. And, and you know, I, in the Navy, I was an officer, so I was, I was pretty much in charge of stuff. But even as a junior officer, you have people above you. So there was this element of having to listen to my superiors. Uh, but then I had people who worked with me and for me, uh, people in my span of care. People think they see TV and movies and they think the military is all about barking orders and telling people what to do. And I will, I will concede that some parts of the military are, in fact, like that, but not special operations. And I had such phenomenal, high-performing people. It doesn't work if you just try to tell them what to do for a couple of reasons. A, because they're too smart. B, because they'll probably have better ideas. And C, because it slows down progress if you if you take that time. And so kind of the secret to getting people to follow effectively is to shut up and listen more, <laughs> you know, and... and and set up an environment where people know that you, as a as the boss, are going to really listen and take into account what they're thinking.
0: Yeah, such good feedback and a great example, as you say, in that sort of forum in the military. But, and I think you know anyone listening that is a boss and that does have you know uh, in charge of people, it's such a wonderful thing to remember. Especially if you've got younger staff coming in, they may not have the experience, particularly in a. a you know, a field or your organization, but often they have some beautiful ideas because they don't have the prior experience and they're not tied to particular ways of doing stuff is my experience. So that's great feedback that you're saying there and people to remember. How do you catch yourself? You know, if you're in that kind of case, what are the tips that you have for people to remind yourself to not, you know, think of what am I going to say next? How am I going to you know, answer this? And especially if you're in a circumstance that you feel a little bit vulnerable or out of your depth and you think, oh, I've got to have a smart answer
1: here because otherwise I'm going to look like an idiot. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have the perfect answer, but I, I think one of the things that I had to really do is get comfortable with the silence. Like I kind of said, we are, as human beings, used to a certain cadence in a conversation and they say something, I say something, they say something. And and, and anytime that cadence is broken, there's a discomfort and you kind of feel like you want to fill that void. Filling that void is a mistake oftentimes for a couple of reasons. A, because the person who's talking is probably not finished. And if you, if you just stay silent, they'll probably keep on talking, which means you just get more, which is great, you know. And so getting comfortable with that silence and, and allowing them the space. And then, of course, asking open-ended questions. We often ask questions in a closed or leading way, you know, yes or no questions are the closed ones and then leading, you know, the example is, you know, did you like this interview? That's a closed question. That's a yes or no answer. Or, or tell me why you liked this interview. That's a leading question, you know, versus the open-ended, which is tell me about that interview. You know, that's a completely open-ended question. So ask open-ended questions and then, and then just get comfortable with the silence.
0: I feel like I'm getting schooled at the moment as an interviewer.
1: (laughs) now I'm really thinking about my questions. <laughs> no, they're, they've been great questions so far. So
0: That's yeah, fabulous. So the work you do now is with like high performance people and leadership and in organizations with your company, The Attributes. And if anyone wants to find out more, we'll have everything in the show notes. But you do some fascinating work with organizations. The reason you want to talk about this topic, is this something you see all the time? Is that why it's something you're passionate about?
1: Being a Navy SEAL, I had the gift from day one of Navy SEAL training of being able to understand who I was at my most raw. And a lot of times we hear the statement, it's the real us that shows up at our most raw. And day one of SEAL training, you're given that opportunity to see that. (laughs) And then it just goes on, especially when you go to combat. And and you see it in yourself and you see it in all the people around you who've been through the same stuff. And I feel like that's a gift because I know exactly how I'm going to perform in any type of stress, challenge, uncertainty. I just know and I think that's a gift that everybody could have, and I think the attributes allow for us to understand ourselves at these very raw levels. So this it's this kind of elemental human performance I'm very, very interested in, both in individuals and in teams.
0: You've done some work in this space about creating the first ever Mind Gym that helps special operators train their brains to perform faster, longer, better, and especially obviously in high stressful circumstances. How do you mould that then? I mean, one, I'm intrigued about that anyway when you were in the Navy SEALs to learn a little bit more about that. But then how do you bring that into everyday life and I guess into non-combat zones, but using it in a way that's effective to navigate the challenges in life these days?
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's it's actually more simple than you think because a lot of people think of Navy SEALs as as big tough physical beings, right? And and that's not true. Navy SEALs, the the, the best Navy SEALs are that because we control our minds, we can control what's up here. And I've seen literally very big tough guys, and they failed, they they've fallen out. And what this means is that we have a control over our over our minds and our autonomic nervous system, so that we can actually manage our stress and anxiety, so that we can effectively make decisions and. These are tools and techniques you could apply to any stress and anxiety in our lives, and it doesn't have to be combat. What I I always often say, you know, stress, fear, and anxiety show up physiologically the same in every human being. You get that autonomic arousal, you get the the, the rapid breathing, the you know pupils dilate, and things like that. That stress, challenge, and anxiety and fear is contextual to the person, right? So, so in 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 other words, what it is a tr- very true statement that a group of Navy SEALs in a gunfight with Al Qaeda could be feeling less fear than the kid you just asked to stand up in front of his class and do a, a book report. Literally, the, the physiological response is going to be the same, if not more, in the eight-year-old you just asked to stand in front of a class and give a book report. And so what that tells us is that as human beings, and if we have the same physiological responses, we can, have, we can use the same tools to actually mitigate those and do better. So what we try to teach people are some of those ways that you can, A, understand who you are showing up to the game, attributes, and B, understand how you can actually manage your autonomic arousal, your stress, fear, and anxiety in a way that allows you to get your frontal lobe back online and make conscious good decisions in uncertainty, challenge, and stress, which is really all... The Navy SEALs are all about, right? It's it's. I always kind of called us masters of uncertainty. That's what we are. It's it's not about the shooting or the skydiving or the scuba diving. It's the fact we can drop into deeply complex environments and start to perform because we understand how to manage ourselves in that way. And I think and that's exportable, which is exciting.
0: Yeah. So I mean, there's so many questions I've got for you, but we haven't got a lot of time. <laughs> so how long were you a Navy SEAL?
1: Just under 21 years. Wow.
0: Okay. So out of that time, if you can even pick one what would you say you loved the most about that work
1: in terms of the job the job i loved the most was when i was running assessment selection and training so i was running the selection process for one of our specialized seal commands and i loved it because it allowed me to really dive into this performance stuff and i just love doing that i love getting really granular so that was the job i loved the most what i loved the most about the job holistically was just the people the, the the people around me and i tell you what i i what i miss the most is the laughing i mean we we would laugh. Actually, I've never experienced any high-performing team that doesn't have a huge sense of humor as a part of it. But the jokes we would make in deep stress and anxiety would be such that, I mean, I remember literally being in such horrific circumstances and someone would crack a joke and be laughing until we were crying because that's the way we, we were able to to deal with it. And it gave us a boost because that's what laughing does. And so and that's what I look back the most fondly on. I don't miss it because I get to I have coffee with guys I served with and we're all retired now. And so we still laugh and stuff. But but it is it was one of the things I, I loved the most in terms of the team aspect of it.
0: Why is that? Do
1: you think is there a neurological
0: element to that? You know, laughing obviously releases, you know, serotonin and, you know, different hormones and things. It just made me think about, you know, nurses and doctors, but nurses have the wickedest sense of humor. I've always felt it's how they manage you know, the challenges of what they see all day, every day. And that's kind of that opposite type scenario. But have you seen something from a, a scientific aspect in this space?
1: Oh, yes. So when we laugh, which is an involuntary response, it's like sneezing. Okay. We get juiced with three very powerful chemicals. They're neurotransmitters. One is dopamine. And we all know dopamine. Dopamine as well. It's known as a reward chemical. It's, in fact, a motivation chemical. Dopamine tells us, this is good, keep doing this. This is good, keep doing this. This is why it's the root of all addictive behavior. But we get dopamine. It's one of the most powerful feel-good chemicals that we get. We get endorphins. Endorphins mask our pain. So, and, and it's funny, in the late 60s, early 70s, scientists were studying the brains of drug addicts, and they discovered that the human brain had opiate receptors. And they said, that's interesting. Why the heck? Does the human brain have opiate receptors? It's because we make our own opiates. They're called endorphins. Endorphins, you know, athletes will will, will describe this as runners high, right? But we go a long distance, and where we are the endurance creatures we are because our body releases these endorphins to make our pain dissipate. So we get dopamine, we get endorphins, and finally we get oxytocin, which is oxytocin is known as the love hormone. It's really more of a neuromodulator, which means it affects both the body and the brain. But, but it's, the, it's the bonding, binding chemical of human beings. We get huge amounts of oxytocin when we engage in physical contact with other human beings. Even with our animals, our pets, we get oxytocin. We get oxytocin when we engage in acts of kindness and generosity, whether we're the giver or the receiver. What's even cooler is actually even witnessing acts of kindness and generosity, we get oxytocin. But anyway, it bonds us and binds us. Binds us. So, so we think about it, when we laugh, which is involuntary, We immediately get these three chemicals whether we liked it or not whether we're asking for them or not which means it says hey this doesn't feel that bad or keep doing this this is fine this doesn't feel that bad and we're in this together you know and so laughing is a huge huge hack into going on pursuing powering through for any profession. That's why you see the, the people in some of the darkest or the, some of the most serious professions with the biggest or even darkest sense of humor, because it's a survival mechanism.
0: Yeah, I've never heard it described that way, but it makes complete sense. So so you've been out of the Navy for six years now, I understand. And what's changed in your life since then? How, how do you integrate yourself into normality after that Rich, Like, it must be fascinating and also to relax a bit, you know, like you're not in combat anymore.
1: So it's like, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a feeling like things aren't ex- as exciting. But I will say this: after 21 years and 13 deployments, I did seven to Iraq and and five to Afghanistan. I was pretty much ready to to <laughs> to, to, to to hang it up. I, I have a family. I have a beautiful wife, two kids. You know, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to change. So so it wasn't too much of a transition for me. And then again, you know, as soon as I got out, I got into leadership space. And then I wrote the book. And now we're building a business, which a whole new. It's a whole new challenge which involves and requires a whole different type of courage. It involves a whole different type of perseverance, and, and I get to do it with my wife now, so that's, that's really good. So, so I would say, I always joke that the, the biggest thing I had to get used to leaving the SEAL teams was the sense of time that people experience. And I, always, you know, I say that there's three types of time. There's military time, there's civilian time, and there's Navy SEAL time. And so military time is if you're not 15 minutes early or late. Civilian time is any time between start time and 15 minutes, you're fine. And Navy SEAL time is plus or minus 30 seconds because that's how we used to plan our, our helicopters. Like we used to tell our hel- helicopters, they'd say, they'd say, hey, we're going to be there at like 11.58 plus or minus 30 seconds. And so so I always joke that that's pretty – but that's the, kind of the biggest thing is just to get the sense of, you know, I don't have to be – plus or minus 30 seconds in in places anymore I still am usually but (laughs) but but it's not required can't unlearn that stuff right and
0: and I'm curious about you know how your kids deal with that because they're like all right
1: dad yeah I'm not not militant at all I've I've never been a militant dad so they're good you know I I just lead by example if I can Do, do
0: you pull any um you know good stories for them though like to take your dad to school and say he was a navy seal like they'd be pretty up there in terms of popular kids I imagine
1: it, well, yeah, kind of. I mean, other than we live in a we live in an area here in in Virginia where there's a lot of seals around here. The stark reality is that they grew up during the war and they saw how how much I was gone and they and they saw how many funerals I went to. And so they don't have a a rosy picture of the military. And that neither of them want to join. I mean, if they wanted to I'd just support them. I'm actually happy that they don't. But they don't want to join. They saw some, they saw their dad in an environment that when you live it, it's not that cool. And my wife says this all the time. She's like, "Yeah, you, everybody thinks it's all cool to be married to a Navy SEAL." until he goes overseas and you're worried about him dying and you you're seeing friends come back in caskets and so and so there's a seriousness that people take for granted it's not the hollywood sexy stuff uh, there's a, there's a realism to to the job and the profession that is sobering. (laughs) I don't mean it to be a downer, it's just, it's a reality. It's war and war, war is awful for everybody. Yeah,
0: and it's probably, there's another side to that where in some ways for the kids to understand that firsthand, you know, hopefully that goes into their life of, you know, we need to have less wars and less combat and, you know, the more young children can realize that, then hopefully they'll change it for us in the future, because we don't seem to do a great job of that at the moment.
1: Well, I know my my kids feel that way, which is good. Yeah,
0: that's nice. Come back to the whole empathetic listening, you know, your kind of notion about this and how do we do that better? How do you advise people to catch themselves, as I said earlier, around, you know, really listening to someone and letting someone just talk and then they generally just, you know, open up. And I think guys are very good at that, probably better than women as well, massively generalizing, but my experience. So how do you encourage that or some tips on how we can do that better?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, well the practice part is, you know, obviously ask open-ended questions. But you can be conscious about the questions you're asking, whether they're closed, leading or open. The second practice is just you know when you feel the urge to speak, do not <laughs> you know. But the third one I think, and this is a more tough one, is, is just practicing empathy to begin with. And practicing empathy really, it's an effort. If you're if, and empathy is an attribute I talk about. If you're you know some people are just higher on it, and some people are lower on it. And if you're a little bit lower, which I think I am, my wife is higher, I'm a little lower. I actually deliberately will go find or research or listen to people who I who I know I vehemently disagree with, and then I I, I make an attempt to really try to get in their shoes. And here's the thing, here's the thing about empathy that people need to know. You don't empathy does not require agreement. You don't have to agree with someone to empathize with them. And so the work is can I really listen to someone and and really get a sense of their shoes? You know, can I can I kind of get into their shoes, even if I disagree with their shoes can I get in their shoes? And I think that's the practice there holistically in terms of practicing overall empathy and trying to get better at it.
0: Such a good point. I've been doing that for years and part of this podcast is having conversations with people about often, you know, stuff that I don't agree with or I don't understand or I want to learn more about. But it's a sense of openness, isn't it? To be able to do that in terms of, you know, as a tour guide throughout Europe and the things that I'd learned about religion through that time, the more I learned about it, the more I was like, whoa, like, you know, I just there's no religion I feel tied to because they've all got good and they've all got bad. And I take a curious approach to it. And I think that's what I try and encourage others is just to, you know, not form an opinion, but just be curious. And it is hard when somebody may say something that you, to your point, vehemently disagree with and how to sit in that. Like what's been a really interesting example for you to to tackle that and really challenge yourself in that regard?
1: Oh gosh, I'll give you a story of, of this in action. And that kind of hit me when we were, we. so a bunch of us seals, we were in Iraq at one of our tours and there happened to be a situation where, and this is unfortunate, it happened probably too often. It was like a 13 year old kid, 12 or 13 year old kid attempted to shoot a Rocket propelled grenade at a coalition convoy. Now, of course, they can't let that happen. So they had, to, they had to shoot the kid. And the kid, of course, was at that point deceased. You know, we saw this happen. And later that night, we we're all kind of around the fire. And we didn't have any work that night. So we we're just kind of chatting. And that incident came up. And we said, let's just talk about that for a second. Let's walk that back. Here's a kid. He's 12 or 13 years old. Right. He probably has no father. Right. It's, it's probably just him taking care of his, his mom and his sisters. There's no school. There's no sports. There's no loud there's no music. There's no parties. There's no girls or dating. You know, there's nothing for this kid to get his 13-year-old testosterone out on, you know. And then one day, the bad guys show up, and, or some guys show up, and they say, we'll give you 100 dinar if you go shoot this rocket-propelled grenade at this convoy. And every single one of the SEALs in that circle at that point said, we would be that kid. If we were in that situation, we would be that kid. Now, that's a, it's an example of empathy. We, don't, we, didn't, we weren't agreeing what the kid was doing. You know, we don't agree with the act but we can certainly put ourselves in the shoes of the kid and understand why it happened. And so, so I think that's the exercise is can you stop, can you take a pause, and you, can you walk back a situation and you say, hey, what could have gotten this person to this point, to this belief system that maybe I might understand? And again, I just still don't have to agree with it, but I can at least understand and empathize. Even that act alone, if someone even that you really disagree with even, even gets a feeling that you're trying to do that, they will feel like you care for them. You will create a bond there, you know, and suddenly you've now created a bond with another human being because we can feel this empathetically, right? It's a, it's a limbic thing. So so I think that's, a, that's an example of trying to actually do that in an effective way, even with something you disagree with.
0: Mm, great example. And, you know, absolutely, like truly listening to you then, as I'm very consciously doing, you could completely relate. And I think that's uh, an important one for people to remind themselves of often. Rich, I'd like to finish to talk a little bit about your book, which is the attributes, and it's around 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance. We don't have time to go through them all now, and obviously people need to read that to do it, but you can't say that, I imagine, out of the 25, there's one that's more important than the other, but do you have a favourite?
1: <laughs> I have a couple of favourites. Um, I would say this. They, 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 in the book, I talk about 25. They're actually, now the work we do with organisations, we work with 42 attributes. The 25 I talk about in the book are starting to around this idea of optimal performance. And there's five categories, grit, mental acuity, drive, leadership, and team ability. I don't try to put them in any order, but I would say that the grit attributes, courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience, I think those are probably some of the most important. And courage is probably the most important as a human being, because courage is literally the ability to step into our fear and discomfort, right? And if we're not able to do that, I mean, we're stalled as humans. I mean, we courage is this single attribute that has allowed us as a species to go from cave dwellers to space explorers, right? This ability to step outside of our comfort zone and keep going, right, and keep doing it. And so I think that's probably my favorite because it's so elemental in our progress as human beings, whether it be our individual progress or our progress as a species.
0: Not really surprising to me, given your background and what you've done and having to be so courageous to do that. So that's fabulous. I've had to practice it a lot. Yes. Rich, what a delight it's been to talk to you. Thank you so much. And, you know, really appreciate your insights. And I'm going to continue to learn more from you on your website and books and everything. So thanks for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor?